Now we're going to take a sidestep from our uh, study through Kings. We're going to look at the, the prophet Zephaniah for uh, just three weeks because uh, as we come into the second half of the book, this is when the major and the minor prophets all start speaking. And obviously I can't do all the major and minor prophets because then you know we'd get to the rest of second kings in like 20 years or something like that so that wouldn't work out very well but i thought we would take uh one that not only has a lot of practical relevance for today a prophet like zephaniah but uh if you're like me he might be some of the freshest pages that you have in your copies of god's word zephaniah is not a book that we often get to look at and spend time uh, considering, and there is so much here uh, in this this short prophecy uh, that you see Zephaniah giving here as you come to the ends of uh, the the time of the the reign of Judah and the kingdom of of Judah. What you're going to see in this first chapter as we look at this this evening is uh, the problem of complacency. That is really uh, the target that Zephaniah has as he is going to give really three pictures of the complacency that is going on in, in the nation. This is, I think, an interesting word to consider uh, as it is given to us because uh, when you think about complacency and the times that we use that word, um, I, I think of sometimes we'll use the word in sports and we'll say, you know, a team won everything and then the fi- next time they tried to go for a championship or like in the Olympics, the runner, they became complacent because they had already won the previous time. But sometimes when we will use a word like that, that they became comfortable in their circumstances and no longer were pressing like they were before. Sometimes we'll use it even when it comes to marriage. And you might have seen that kind of circumstance where somebody becomes complacent in the marriage, the idea of taking it for granted. And so then problems ensue because of the complacency uh, that is going on. And, And the issue now that Zephaniah has is a complacency when it comes to their relationship with God. They have become comfortable and unconcerned. And so we're going to look at these three pictures in chapter one, the images that are given to us there, and then talk about how we can resist this problem. We're told in Zephaniah one and verse one, a long list of names to give us a reference point of Zephaniah. But if I were to put it in our day and language, Zephaniah's great, great grandfather was the righteous king Hezekiah. And I think that is an interesting lineage that you get from Zephaniah. And he is able to trace himself back to a righteous king. Of all the more significance, as we're told in verse 1, he's prophesying in the days of Josiah. He is one of the better kings that Judah ever is able to have. In fact, while Josiah is reigning on the throne, he is initiating all kinds of spiritual reforms, attempting to turn the people back to God, which is what makes this prophecy interesting. Because you have a righteous king who is enacting spiritual reforms, and yet it doesn't seem to be working very well because Zephaniah is going to come in and say, you all have problems. (laughs) Even though we've got a righteous king and even though he's doing good things, it's apparently not moving the needle with the people. 
And so that's when Zephaniah comes in. The, the first six verses give us the first picture that God wants to give. And in those first four verses, it, it sounds like a global judgment. It sounds very much almost like the judgment that came in the days of Noah. Verse, verse 1, sweeping away everything from the face of the earth. Verse 3, sweeping away man and animal, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, the rubble with the wicked. I'm going to cut off people from the face of the earth. This massive judgment imagery is how Zephaniah begins. But you'll notice in verse 4 that this judgment really is going to start in Judah and with Jerusalem. I'm going to stretch out my hand, verse 4, against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem and cut them off. And so immediately as you hear this prophet begin to say judgment is coming, everybody's worthy of it, and it's going to start in Jerusalem. You just think, well, what's the problem? What's happened? Why is judgment going to come? And I want you to notice as he says at the end of verse 4 that God is going to have to cut off this remnant of Baal and cut off the idolatrous priests and all this idolatry that's going on. But listen to the words here in verse 5. Those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, that's an idol, false god. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. I want you to capture the picture that he immediately identifies with the people a hypocritical heart. That verse 5 says they are bowing down and swearing their allegiance to God while at the same time they bow down to all the stars, the hosts of heaven, and are bowing down to their idols and they're bowing down to Baal and bowing down to Milcom and swearing their allegiance to those gods as well. In fact, you notice the imagery that's given. They just says that they've turned their backs on God. They're no longer listening to him. Now, here's what is so fascinating about that is notice that all of the externals are still intact. Sounds like they're still worshiping God. They're bowing down to him and they're saying all the right words. They're pledging their allegiance to the Lord. They're saying the Lord's our God. We will follow him. We will serve him. And so they have all of the form in place. And yet at the same time, while they say they're a worshiper of God and they are devoted to God and have given their allegiance to God, at the same time, they worship other gods. And the truth of the matter tells us that though they say it and make their oaths before the Lord and bow down to the Lord, verse 6 says, they've turned back from following the Lord. And notice the rest of that verse where it says they actually don't seek him and they actually don't inquire of him. They say all the right things and they look the part, but they actually don't do what they say. They say we follow God, but they don't inquire of him. They say we're loyal to God, but they don't seek him. And so it's a really interesting picture that is given in a heart of the time when a righteous King Josiah is on the throne is that the people are feigning this kind of obedience to God, feigning that they have a heart for God. Oh, we love God. We worship God. We care about God. But they actually don't. They're completely hypocritical. 
The reason why I also think this is, is an amazing picture about them saying all the right things and yet not doing exactly what God wants them to do, not following, not seeking, not inquiring, is because when Jesus comes along in the New Testament, he observes still the exact same problem. This seems to be a grand issue that people of God have, is that they become complacent in saying all the right things and pretending that they're followers, but they actually aren't inquiring of God or seeking him. Remember Jesus in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Here he's walking around hundreds of years later and he comes to the people of Israel and he says, nothing has changed. Their worship of me is empty because they teach instructions that are human words. They seem to wear the wear the, the part, seem to have all the right words, wear the label correctly, but it's not real. It's quite fake. And so that's the first picture that, that is given to us, is that what God was looking for at this time was for the hearts to be fixed, the hearts to be turned to God. Not that they would just do certain activities. The point of Josiah and his reign and the point of the prophets was not, you know, just make sure you get all of your certain things and get all your ducks in a row so it looks like you're faithful. God wanted a heart here, that God wanted it to come from within them, that they truly wanted a relationship and seek the Lord. And yet Zephaniah comes along and says, that's ultimately not, not what's happening. In fact, the second picture goes right along with that. In verses 7 through 12, he continues to speak to them in their complacency. He describes judgment that's coming from verse 7 through verse 11. As you can see the picture of here is all the punishments that are coming and judgments are going to be heard and wailing and crashing is going to come. In verse 12, he says, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Two pictures in that sentence right there about the problem. He says in verse 12, I'm going to punish the complacent. That's the word that the ESV uses here to get the idea of this Hebrew word. The, the New American Standard reads those who are stagnant in spirit. The Christian Standard reads those who settle down comfortably. And the NIV reads who are like wine left on the dregs. And you might try to figure out why are all the different words being used here? And the, the notes to this Hebrew phrase is that this is an image that comes from winemaking where wine, as it's allowed to remain on its, on its setting there too long, then starts to settle with the sediment and it turns into syrup. And so he's using that on the people and saying, basically, you're just sitting there and you're doing nothing. So how do you say that in an image? Well, the ESV says complacent. I like the Christian standard who settle down comfortably. You just sat yourself in a spot and just kind of settled right on in. That's what he's pointing out to them and saying, you become complacent. You're stagnant in spirit. You are settled down comfortably. You're just resting there. The whole idea is you have become just so comfortable in this world. You've become comfortable in this life. And I think it is an important picture because if you think about this, 
how easy it is to see that this is the reason for complacency. We become comfortable in our lives. We become comfortable because we have families. We become comfortable because we have wealth. We become comfortable in our homes. We become comfortable with our entertainment. We become comfortable with our comforts. We become comfortable with our careers. We become comfortable with our schedules. And we become comfortable with our sins. So that we just settle down into this routine where it's about job, family, comfort, entertainment, money, relaxation, rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. And you just become complacent. You just settle in. And I think this is a very important warning because... What has happened is they have become so comfortable and become so satisfied in this world and what they have and in their sins that they've completely lost their zeal for God. They're described as saying all the right things and doing the worship, but they really don't care about God because he just told them back in verse five, you don't follow him, you don't seek him and you don't inquire of him. You're comfortable. You're just settled in. You're enjoying life. You don't really have a need for God. You're comfortable in the way things are and you've settled into that. And so I think it is interesting because this is what I think is very symptomatic of what happens when we stop seeing our purpose and why we are ultimately here. We stop caring for the lost. We stop caring for each other. It's just let's do worship and hurry home. Let's just get this over with. It's Because we're comfortable. I've got families to get back to, our schedules to get back to, our jobs to get back to, our comfort to get back to. Don't you know the TV's on? We've got things to do. We're comfortable with our daily living and we become complacent with God. And that's what happened. That's what's going on in the days of Zephaniah. That's what those people have done. And I think the reason why this happens is what's also pointed out in verse 12. Notice what they say in their hearts. They don't go around saying this because we don't go around saying this, but notice what they say in their hearts. They say in their hearts, the Lord's not going to do anything. He isn't going to do good. He isn't going to do ill. Nothing's going to happen. It's all right that we live our comfortable lives and we settle on into our schedules And our daily things of life where we care about our stuff and our wealth and our family just go into all that because God's not going to do anything about it anyway. It is interesting that it is not a denial of God. They believe that the Lord is alive, but that he's not active. He's not going to do anything. He's just going to let us carry on doing what we've always been doing. And there's not going to be judgment. There won't be consequences. There won't be accountability. We're just going to get keep doing what we've always been doing. And I think that is what has happened here is that this mentality that God is like Baal. Remember what Elijah said to the Baal worshipers when he was taunting them on Mount Carmel as they were crying out to God, their God, and saying to them, well, why isn't your God responding? Maybe he's gone on a trip. He's on vacation. He's. He, he's, he's occupied. He's, he, he's over on the side and can't be bothered right now. He, 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 he's out of commission at the moment. He's asleep. And if you just yelled a little louder, he would wake up. But sometimes we look at our Lord that way. Well, you know, he's not going to do anything. 
He doesn't really see, you know, he's kind of over there dealing with all the other world's problems. He isn't paying attention to me. We sometimes can approach God that way. And I want us to see that what happens is we stay complacent and in this comfort level of being consumed by the rigmarole of this life and the cares of this world because we don't think God's going to do anything about it. And so I'm all right being complacent and I'll just keep doing what I'm doing and wasting my time instead of serving God the way that he wants me to. And I think this has been terribly difficult for us because we live in a prosperous, comfortable culture. It's easy to fall into. And so we settle into our world. We become preoccupied with our lives. We become preoccupied with this country. We become preoccupied with our job. We become preoccupied with our family. We become preoccupied with money. And we lose regard for God. We just get in with all that stuff. And we worry about and think about all this other stuff. And we completely lose fire for God. This is what has happened to these people in the days of Zephaniah. Is that they're more consumed by such things and yet consider they're still worshiping God while they do it they're still worshiping God while they do it they're still giving their allegiance to the Lord and bowing down to him while at the same time doing all these things that God says I'm going to judge you for that is the complacency picture that is being described third picture of complacency from verse 13 through the end of for the first chapter is given to us. Notice some of the things that are described here, where he says there in, in verse 13, their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they will not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. Here is God saying, you're making all these plans. You're building your houses. You got your vineyards. You're consumed in the day. You've consumed with your stuff and your schedules and your Monday through Friday. And he says, all that's going to come to nothing. You're building, but you're not going to get in the house. And you're planting, but you're not going to enjoy any of it. In fact, he points out in verse 18, neither their silver or their gold shall deliver them on the day of the wrath of God. Think about why he's identifying these things, because this is the third picture of complacency. The third picture of complacency is, I believe that I have the power to carry out all of my plans and everything that I want to do. And if anything goes bad, I've got my wealth to save me. I've got my stuff. And I've got my wealth and I've got my plans and I'm going to carry out my plans and I've got my money and so I'm good. And he goes, I'm going to make all of your wealth go to nothing. You think your wealth is going to deliver you? I'm going to make it disappear. You think you're going to move into those houses, but I'm not going to let you do it. I'm not going to allow you to enjoy any of those blessings that you could have enjoyed. One of the things that I think is so interesting about this <clears throat> is because if there was anything that hopefully would have jarred us out of complacency, it was last year. <laughs> Did last year not teach us your plans are worthless before God? You can make all the plans in the world and God can throw that in the trash in an instant. 
and completely flip those upside down, completely ruin those, change everything. All the plans you had 16 months ago were evaporated. Gone. And how did your wealth do in delivering you through all that? It was there and rescued you, right? You got more toilet paper there. No, we all didn't have toilet paper. It didn't deliver you. And it kept you from getting sick, right? All that money? No. This is what God is doing. Is he saying, here you are still making your plans and thinking that your wealth is going to save you. And that's why you're complacent. That's why you're comfortably settled down. And you don't realize that God in a snap can just wipe that away. We should have got that from last year. And yet we settle back in to the dregs again, just like they were doing in their day and time. And so God says, I'm not going to allow you to enjoy any of these things. You're not going to be able to enjoy your job, your wealth, your family, your stuff. And it's an important reminder to us that the only reason we are able to ever enjoy any of the blessings, enjoy our family, enjoy our wealth, enjoy the fruit of our labor, enjoy our jobs, enjoy any of those things is because God allowed us to. And didn't last year remind us of that. It's only because of him and no other. But the terrible picture here is that the people have allowed God's blessings, all of this fruitfulness that was described in verse 13. They have their goods. They have their houses. They've planted their vineyards. They have their wine. They've got all of their stuff and they've got enough wealth in verse 18 that they think it's going to help them and save them. All of those blessings have caused them to forget God. It's one of the worst things that happens is God so richly blesses us that we stop having a zeal for God, but a zeal for the stuff. He so richly blesses us that we no longer care about God, but then we become soon with all the blessings. And that's what has happened in the days of Zephaniah. They have their jobs, they have their wealth, they have their schedule, they have their stuff, they have their families, and they go, ah, we're fine. God's not going to do anything. We're just going to chill out right here. It's all good. And God says, I'm not going to allow you to enjoy those blessings anymore. In fact, I think the great irony of it is all of these blessings from career, job, wealth, comfort, family, homes, stuff. We turn around and then use those blessings as an excuse against God as to why we don't serve him the way we ought to. Well, God, you know, I've got all these things I've got to take care of. You know, I've got all these responsibilities and I've got all this and I've got all this. And God's, who gave that to you? I gave that to you. And you're going to use that as the excuse as to why you're not going to love me and serve me and have a devotion to me anymore? It's what the people had done here in the days of Zephaniah. So let's talk then an application about what God was trying to show. I think one of the big points that Zephaniah 1 is trying to communicate is that you might be complacent about God, but God is not complacent. See, that's what they thought, is that God's complacent. He won't do bad. He won't do good. He does nothing. He, he's just sitting down as well. He's just calmly relaxing. He's in the recliner. He's not going to get up and do anything. And here's God saying, that's not me. I'm not complacent. I will do something against that complacency. 
I will not allow that to go on. And so he gives these three pictures of what that complacency looks like. And it is a description of a stagnant faith is that we are declaring our allegiance to God, but we don't follow him. We say we follow him. We say we love him. We don't seek him. We don't inquire of him. A stagnant faith says, it's all right. God won't judge me for my sins. He doesn't care if I'm settled down like that. He doesn't care if I engage in all those responsibilities and neglect God. He doesn't care. That's what a stagnant faith says. This is what's going on in that day and time. A stagnant faith says, I have the power to carry out my plans and my wealth will rescue me from any problems that lie ahead. These are the three things that they were doing at that day and time. It's the same three things that we have the tendency to do. It's the same three things that Jesus had to come to the church in Laodicea and wear them out about and say, you're in a whole lot of trouble for the same problem. Revelation 3, verse 16. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Why? Because you say, I'm rich. I prospered. I need nothing. I'm doing great. I got my stuff. Got my family, got my wealth, got my career, got all my ducks in a row. I'm just relaxing. It's all good. I'm comfortable. And he goes, but you don't realize you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. You're looking at the physical going, I'm doing great. And all the while you're spiritually deteriorating. Spiritual complacency is setting in. And so he tells them in verse 19 of of Revelation 3, where he just simply says, you need to be zealous and repent. Revelation 3, 19. Be zealous and repent. Stop getting comfortable in this culture. Stop settling in to what the world says should be your way of life and schedule. But instead... Be zealous for God and repent. And this is where this line comes in next. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I think that verse sometimes gets dislodged from what is intended here. He's just told them, you think you're rich. You've settled down comfortably. You don't realize that you're blind and naked. You don't see your spiritual condition. You're so complacent that you're blind to how bad your situation is. I want you to be zealous and repent. And notice what the final image is to Laodicea. Here's God making a plea. I want a relationship with you. I don't want you to just do more external stuff. The the problem in Revelation 3 was not that they weren't going to worship or partaking of the Lord's Supper or offering prayers. They're, They're doing all that stuff. They just don't care about God. They've been so worn down by the world that there is no fire for God. You are lukewarm, he says. And the answer is not go to church more. The answer is, don't you want a relationship with your God? This was the same problem in the days of Zephaniah. Everything externally looked great. Still bowing down to God. Still worshiping. Still proclaiming loyalty. But they were complacent with God. Jesus comes along in the first century. Says the exact same thing to them. 
Your lips honor me, but your heart's far from me. I want a relationship. And just get the picture of that. That what our Lord is doing, and here we are as we're so comfortable in our culture, and we're comfortable with our wealth and our stuff and our homes and our families and our careers and every, all that kind of stuff. And the picture of verse 20 is Jesus going, you got any time for me? You, you, do you want me? You just want your stuff. You want me? Or do you just want your homes and your wealth and your jobs and your family? He just says, I'm standing there knocking. Are you interested in a relationship with him or not? It's a powerful invitation that God says is, I want to change your life, but you've got to let me have a relationship with you. Don't let this just be saying the right things and looking the part, but truly seeking in a relationship with him. One of the things I'm excited for over the next probably two or three, four Wednesday nights is I want to talk about how we can practically engage away from that stagnant, complacent spirit and how we can really get excited about God and his word and how that can become a real treasure and a joy because sometimes God's word comes out that way where it just feels like, oh, I just have to go through it. I really want to spend some real practical few hours in talking about here's how you can really get excited about God so that you can have this kind of relationship that he's describing here in Revelation 3. Let's go to God in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, it is, it is jarring to read this first chapter of Zephaniah, a, a prophet who, who, who spoke 2,600 years ago and says all the same things that we deal with today. And God, I pray for forgiveness for when our zeal has been quenched because we have been complacent in this world. That God, you would forgive us for when we've cared far too much about the things of this world and the things of this culture. We become far too consumed about our wealth and our health and our families and our stuff and our jobs and our country and all of these things that just take our eyes completely off of you. So God, forgive us for settling down comfortably. And Lord, we pray that we would have a zeal for you that would move us off our couches and cause us to seek you with all of our heart. And so Lord, not only forgive us for that, but, but press us in the right ways. And allow those times, Lord, that when we are becoming complacent with our schedules and our day-to-day -day affairs, that you would jar us and wake us and help us see that that is not what the goal of this life is. And help us to see that we need to be spending far more time seeking your will, your purpose, and your kingdom. So God, help us in that pursuit and forgive us for the times that we have lost sight of who we are and why we're here. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to sing an invitation song and invite you to come to Jesus tonight. And I hope you'll allow what Zephaniah says to, to jar you for the moment and consider if you've been complacent with God.
It's easy to get slow cooked by our culture and allow ourselves to think that this is all there is. And if we can help you to respond to God's call to turn away from your sins and to press into him and draw near to him and seek him with all of your heart, we want to help you do that. And we hope you do that now. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?